The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, March 19th. Today, Republicans change their tune on bailouts, the race to develop a treatment for the coronavirus, and how South Korea got testing right. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. By the middle of the week, Trump started calling this a war. He said America is fighting a silent enemy and that we should adopt a wartime posture. And he said, in fact, he considers himself to be a wartime president. Yeah, I look at it, I I view it as a, uh, in a sense, a wartime president. I mean, that's what we're fighting. I mean, it's it's a a very tough situation. You have to do things, you you have to close parts of an economy that, Six weeks ago, we're we're the best they've ever been. We had the best economy we've ever had. And then one day you have to close it down in order to defeat this enemy. And, uh, but we're doing it and we're doing it well. And I'll tell you, the American people have been incredible. I'm Philip Rucker, White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post. And I'm coming to you from underneath a blanket in my study. I think what he's trying to do is is create an environment of war uh, where all of the American people will rally behind their president and their commander in chief and and support one another. And of course, there's sort of a something nice and patriotic about that. But Trump, I think, sees a, a political opportunity here to try to uh, make make up basically for all the lost time and, and and repair his image. And he thinks if he can cast this as a a war that the country's fighting, and and you know when we get through when coronavirus is gone, we'll have our big victory celebration. If everyone makes this uh, change or these critical changes and sacrifices now, we will rally together as one nation and we will defeat the virus and we're going to have a big celebration all together. I mean, these are the terms he's using, and it seems to be a a political strategy on his part uh, as he thinks about the reelection Uh, campaign, the election itself uh, in November, only eight months away. And what do you think that says about how the coronavirus is changing Trump's presidency? It's changed his presidency in a profound way. I mean, Trump will now be defined by how he managed not only the public health crisis of the coronavirus outbreak, but the economic calamity that has followed. We've seen the stock markets take a true beating. Entire industries are washed out and at a standstill right now. And how the president handles this, uh, not only in terms of trying to save lives and mitigate the spread of coronavirus, but also to help the economy recover, to help people whose livelihoods depend on the tips and wages they get at restaurants, for example, to help them all survive this truly tumultuous period. 
And I think that the shift that we've seen over the past few weeks is all the more remarkable because it's not just about taking this virus seriously and lawmakers finally kind of paying attention to the real ramifications of the coronavirus as an outbreak, but also they're like shifting attitude towards economic policy in in a time of crisis. I mean, we're talking about sending thousands of dollars to every American, which a few weeks ago was something that was like pretty radical for a Democrat to say, for Andrew. Yang to say on a presidential stage. And then now you have this being the policy of Republicans. You're so right. It's amazing how this has turned about because just a few weeks ago, the idea of sending a thousand dollar check to every American was sort of a fringe, uh, loony idea uh, off to the side on a Democratic presidential debate stage. And now it is mainstream policy for the Republican Party. This is the proposal, of course, that the Trump administration has put forward, uh, helmed by the Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, but it has received rapid support and enthusiastic support among Republican lawmakers. In addition, uh, this $1 trillion uh, stimulus package, rescue package for the economy, uh, would include a bailout of the airline industry. It would include a bailout of a number of other industries, as well as $300 billion in help for small businesses around the country. Uh, This is a remarkable sea change for a Republican Party that just a decade ago, 12 years ago, was railing about the bank bailouts. Remember that Tea Party movement formed in the wake of the 2008 bank bailouts in opposition to that sort of use of public money for private businesses. Republicans were preaching austerity and and paying attention to the debt and the deficit. And now all of a sudden under President Trump, they're advocating, you know, what some might describe as socialism, giving government money uh, to prop up businesses and and into the hands of all Americans. And are there any Republicans that are acknowledging the cognitive dissonance of this huge about face that that now they're the ones who are advocating for bailouts and and to be fair, I mean, these are very different circumstances from 2008. The recession, I, I think it's fair to say, was pretty much brought on by the banks themselves and their predatory practices. And the idea of, of bailing them out for the ramifications of that, I think, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. But still, that now you have Republicans talking about a trillion dollar bailout. And, and, and have they kind of acknowledged the fact that this is a very different landscape for them to be in? You know, that's such an important point because it is so different. And and some of these Republicans have acknowledged the different circumstances. For example, Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, he was a leading opponent to the bank bailouts in 2008. He made his national profile in part on lowering the debt and, and, and being careful with federal money like this. And, and now he's a big enthusiastic supporter of the Mnuchin-Trump uh, trillion-dollar rescue plan for the economy. And he acknowledged to our colleague, Bob Costa, that times are different. This is an emergency, a public health emergency, and it's necessary for the government to step in to help people. It's a very different scenario than in 2008, when, as you noted, it was a recession brought on by human error and, and, and by the mistakes of the banking institutions. What part of this crisis do you think President Trump is most focused on right now? 
you know, there are two things that he's most focused on. First is the stock market. He sees the uh, the numbers, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, as a barometer for his own reelection. He has been acutely focused on the stock markets ever since he took office three years ago uh, and has been so proud of the rise and is really uh, rattled by the decline in the last few days. So he's, he's trying to do everything he can to juice the markets, to inspire confidence among investors, and to prevent the unemployment rate. Uh, from surging into the double digits that very well could happen. Uh, We'll have to wait another month to see what the real unemployment picture looks like. But Trump is very worried about that. The second thing he's focused on is his own image. Uh, We know he cares intensely about how he is perceived in the media uh, and by his supporters. And he's very concerned uh, about how people are interpreting his leadership during this crisis. He, uh, as we discussed earlier, ignored the coronavirus for so long. He dismissed it outright. He didn't really focus on trying to prepare the United States for the outbreak. Now, all of a sudden, he's trying to rewrite history and he's telling people that uh, he knew this would be a pandemic before it was even called a pandemic. And he's calling himself a wartime president. That is a real shift uh, in his posture, but it speaks to the concern he has about the beating that his own image has faced. And I think that one thing that we've heard a lot from economists so far is that, yes, injecting a trillion dollars into the economy will maybe be helpful or maybe stop some businesses from going under. But that at the same time, the thing that all of this is dependent on is how long this lasts, how long it takes before coronavirus is contained in the U.S. And it seems like there's an irony there that President Trump is really focused on the economic part of this when, in fact, just the economic success and future of the country is really dependent on the public health part of this and just getting the virus under control, getting tests into people's hands, getting people to really stay at home. Yeah, that's a really important point. And and we shouldn't totally dismiss what Trump's doing. He, of course, uh, doesn't want to see people lose their lives and, and he he cares about the health response. But our reporting shows that he has been much more fixated on the economic indicators uh, and on the media coverage of how he's handling the crisis, his own self-image. Uh, and he's, he's largely leaving it to others in the administration, including Vice President Pence and Jared Kushner, his son-in-law and senior advisor, to try to figure out the health response, to try to to get the testing sites uh, up and running as quickly as possible to try to get uh, more medical equipment uh, into the hospitals that are that are under stress right now. Are there any rumblings within Republican Party leadership that this, at least in terms of how it's going so far, is going to have serious ramifications for November? Oh, absolutely. Uh, You know, publicly, a lot of Republican office holders are loath to speculate about the election and the political ramifications, in part because so much of that is unknown at this early stage, and in part because it it just looks bad to be talking about politics at a time of national emergency and and crisis around the country and indeed around the globe. Uh, That being said, privately, Republicans are very concerned that this could lead to a blue wave in the election, that uh, Trump's botch handling uh, of the coronavirus outbreak at the outset uh, will go down as as a real failure of leadership and and failure of, uh, frankly, doing what we elect presidents to do, which is safeguard the country and protect its people. And there's concern that that could have really negative ramifications politically up and down the ballot for Republicans. 
Phil Rucker is the White House Bureau Chief for The Post. As of today, there are no drug treatments on the market for the novel coronavirus. But one of our reporters says that that could change. The goal here was to write a story about the leading potential treatment for the novel coronavirus, a drug called remdesivir. I'm Chris Rowland, and I'm the business of healthcare writer at The Washington Post. So Gilead has been studying this drug with the help of the federal government for the last five or six years, trying to figure out whether it could be a successful treatment against viral threats, including Ebola, including various coronaviruses, because it's considered what's called a broad spectrum antiviral. And, you know, the hope is, is that it could fill this really profound unmet need in our society of having a a drug that can treat uh, one of these serious viruses after someone is infected. So you said that this was a drug that was considered as a possible way to treat something like Ebola. Did that actually work when it was used in that scenario? So unfortunately not. But if the drug remdesivir didn't work in the case of Ebola, why do people think that it could work in the case of this new coronavirus? It's because it has worked in the lab when they put it up against the virus in Petri dishes and vials and beakers. And then it also has worked in animals, monkeys, particularly uh, against coronavirus in terms of a preventative effect. It also did work well uh, in the lab and in animals for Ebola, but then it didn't work in humans. So that just shows you how hard it is to develop these treatments. But the hope is, is that it, wor- it will work better in coronavirus patients. And so that's why it's being tried now in various clinical trials. And at what stage are they in the clinical trials? And if it were to be successful, how quickly could that potentially get into the hands of people who really need it? So the trials launched just in the last several weeks with several hundred patients in China, a few patients, but uh, in a growing population in the U.S. and around the world. And the trials should go pretty fast because, you know, the coronavirus runs its course over a couple of weeks. And if it's given to you early enough and you don't get the disease or it helps alleviate your symptoms, they'll know within two to three weeks. That doesn't mean that the trial will be over in two to three weeks, but for each individual case, they'll have a data point. And so over the course of about two months, they'll collect all these data points from hundreds of patients that where it's tried. And then they'll also collect all the data from patients who get a placebo and compare them and see how effective the drug is or is not. One of the drawbacks of remdesivir is that it also has to be given intravenously. It's not a pill. So Mm. it is a bit of a laborious process to give a patient 10-day course of remdesivir each day. Something that people would need to be hospitalized for. That's true. And they might be in a hospital anyway, suffering from the disease. And so this drug remdesivir, is it a cure or is it more of just like a treatment? It's a treatment. It's an antiviral treatment. Vaccines are under development on a parallel track 
There are many, many companies trying to develop a vaccine as rapidly as possible using a variety of novel approaches. They have, you know, samples of the virus in their labs all over the world, and they're, you know, testing it against a variety of compounds. But the problem is that getting a, a vaccine from lab to market is at least a year to 18 months away. And what happens if this option doesn't end up working out? Are there other antiviral treatments that are being actively tested or considered right now that also seem that they could be close to getting to a point of actually helping people with the novel coronavirus right now? There is one other intriguing treatment, and that is an old treatment for malaria, which they are interested in trying in human trials as well to see if it works for coronavirus. That treatment is an existing treatment. And so if it were successful, it could be into the market quite quickly because it's already approved and doctors could start prescribing it immediately. But but they're still not sure yet whether it would actually be effective in the case of coronavirus. That's right. Let me just tell you about this. If there's an experimental drug that's potentially available, a doctor could ask for that drug to be used in a patient. We have criteria for that and very speedy approval for that. On Thursday, the head of the FDA said that they were considering making these already existing drugs available to a wider pool of patients to see if they're effective in treating coronavirus. We are working expeditiously and we are working to make sure that these products are as safe and effective as they possibly can be. Let me tell you about a few things that we're currently working on. It seems like scientists right now are kind of grasping at straws and that there just aren't enough options of antiviral treatments for something that comes out and becomes a big problem very quickly. Why is that? Or why aren't there more antiviral treatments that exist and and are known to be effective and and that are being actively developed by drug companies before something like a crisis like this happens? Well, that gets into the really the fundamental problems with the sort of the economics of pandemics. The problem with these episodes is that they come along once every few years and then they go away and then there's a new one. And unfortunately, the way our system is, is that Drug companies just don't have a financial incentive to get in there and develop these drugs and develop vaccines on a short-term basis when the market essentially is going to dry up. And it's a real big failing of sort of the, the financial incentives that drive drug development in the United States. When you say that the, that the market is going to dry up, what does that mean? Because, I mean, right now, a ton of people have coronavirus, and I'm sure a ton of people would be really interested in getting a drug for it. That's right. But in a year's time, they may not. And the virus might be gone, it might subside, and the patient pool will disappear. In fact, that's what's happened with you know the cousins of the current coronavirus, SARS and MERS, both disappeared so quickly that clinical trials were not completed for vaccines or treatments in those patients. So this time, the drug companies are saying, some of them are saying they're determined to try to get across the finish line with both vaccines and treatments. And so is that some of the thinking that's happening now, especially in the public health community, about how to get these potential treatments for new and fast-moving viruses, how to get them out of the door faster, not only developed, but like into people's hands more quickly? Because right now, it just seems like the process wasn't built for something that moves this fast. That's right. It doesn't work very fast, and it's uh, episodic. 
And the, the trouble is, is that, you know, the, the government and private partnerships have not been that effective. And yes, people are thinking about it. And there is a, you know, a concerted sort of effort and determination to do better this time. But so far, it remains to be seen if that's actually going to come true. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. Right now, we're working on something big, and we want to know how the coronavirus is affecting you. And we mean everybody. If you are a college student, a bartender, a small business owner, a nurse, a campaign volunteer, a lawyer, a driver, a farmer, a parent, a retiree, whoever you are, we're painting a picture of the pandemic from different perspectives over time, maybe for months, in detail. We'll be sharing your ongoing stories on Post Reports and on our other podcasts at The Post. If you're interested in taking part, please record a voice memo. Tell us who you are in as much detail as you like and how the coronavirus is affecting your life. Then send this voice memo to us at postreports at washpost.com. We're excited to hear from you. And now one more thing. Today we're announcing a new partnership with private sector to vastly increase and accelerate our capacity to test for the coronavirus. The U.S. is scrambling to get more people tested for the novel coronavirus. But there are still significant problems with getting enough tests around the country and giving people access to them. We want to make sure that those who need a test can get a test very safely, quickly and conveniently. But we don't want people to take a test if if we feel that they shouldn't be doing it. So far, South Korea has tested nearly 300,000 people for the virus. That is more people per capita than any other country in the world. Minju Kim is a Post reporter based in Seoul. At its peak, South Korea reported more than 900 cases in one day. Less than a month later, they were down to just 74 cases a day. Experts say that that's because of widespread testing. The test is free for anyone with a doctor's referral. And the treatment cost is also covered by the government for every coronavirus patient in South Korea. The test is available across the country at hundreds of clinics, hospitals, and even at drive through test centers, where you can get tested while sitting in your car. All those tests help scientists learn more about how the virus works. Their data shows that the vast majority of infections there were young people between 20 and 29 who showed mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. That's hugely instructive for other countries dealing with the outbreak now. South Korean officials were also able to identify coronavirus clusters. So when you look at the breakdown of statistics, what stands out is that more than half of South Korea's 8,400 cases are linked to a fringe religious group called Shincheonji Church of Jesus. South Korean health authorities said Sunday services at the church where hundreds of worshippers sit packed together on the floor could have aggravated mass transmissions there. Over the past week, 
South Korea's coronavirus outbreak shows signs of slowing down. The number of daily infections fell to double digits from what used to be in hundreds. But South Korea has yet to lower guards against the virus, especially because small new clusters are constantly emerging. Streets are still pretty much empty. Seems like it will take a while for the country to get back to normal. Minju Kim is a Post reporter based in Seoul. for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. On Tuesday's episode about social distancing, we mischaracterized the border restrictions that China has put in place since the outbreak. China has kept its borders open to international visitors, but new arrivals are required to go through mandatory quarantine. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.